Okay, today we are uh, beginning Romans chapter 10. Having last week just done the last few verses of chapter 9. If I can find it here. And uh, <coughs> Paul is, uh, <coughs> excuse me, is at this point uh, explaining uh, why it is that uh, that things have kind of been turned on their head. And whereas uh, previous to this point in time, Israel had been pretty much the focus of redemptive history of God's salvation plan and uh, and now that's all been reversed and uh, Paul is explaining that reversal and why that reversal occurred and uh, uh, as I said last week we were looking at verses 27 through 33 and uh, and today we're going to pick it up in in verse 1 of chapter 10 uh, Really, in beginning in verse 30 of chapter 9, he kind of begins a whole new, uh, or not not completely new, but a, 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 another line of thought. Uh, whereas previously in chapter 9, he'd, he'd been uh, discussing God's uh, plan, God's purposes, and how he was doing things in salvation history, uh, and explaining that God had the freedom to do things the way he chose to do them. That God is God, and he gets to do things the way God wants to do things. And, and Paul is explaining that. But beginning then in verse 30 of chapter 9 and on through the end of chapter 10, he begins to explain uh, to us what it was about Israel. What did Israel do? Or what was Israel's mistake, if you will? Uh, where did Israel go wrong uh, that ended up uh, with things happening the way they did? So, so in in uh, in the in chapter nine up to this point, he's been he's been telling us that God could choose to do things however He wanted to choose to do them. Now, beginning at in verse thirty and down through chapter ten, he's going to explain to us why God made that choice the way He made it. Okay, and uh, uh, so that's what we pick up in verse thirty. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to begin reading in verse. Well, let's go back to verse twenty-seven. Uh, let's start reading verse 27, chapter 9, uh, just to kind of refresh our minds of things we talked about last week, and then we can review those and go on. So he says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. This is just after he has, he has established that the Gentiles are also included in the family of God, that God has, has made provision whereby the Gentiles could be called, although they were not a people, they could now be called the people of God. And then he switches over and he focuses on Israel and he says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth. Uh, Excuse me. The Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and we would have resembled Gomorrah. What shall we say then? And here's where he he, uh, begins to uh, make another focus. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel... Pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. 
For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That's certainly as far as we'll get today, so we'll stop there. But go back and look at those verses 27 through 33 in chapter 9 and let's kind of review here. What do you remember that we talked about last week? What are some of the things that stick out to you? Okay. 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 We return to that discussion that that Paul began early in chapter nine, where we start out with uh, all the descendants of Abraham, and then. He narrows that down with the promise uh, regarding Sarah that it was going to be a descendant through Sarah. And then he narrows it down again and we showed how Paul was arguing in a way that the Jews would agree with him that, that it wasn't all the descendants of Abraham, but it was, it was defined by these subsequent promises that God gave and that circle got smaller and smaller. And early in chapter 9, we only got so far in that circle, but we never really got down to figure out who were, who were really the true Israel? Paul had said there in verse seven, that, uh, or verse six, I think it is. He'd said uh, he said that they weren't all true Israel. They weren't all Israel who were the descendants of Abraham. But he didn't actually get all the way down to define who exactly it was that he was talking about. And he doesn't do that until the verses that we looked at last week. He finally brings it down and tells us who it is that's in that in that little circle of ethnic Jews who are really the true Israel or who are part of true Israel. How was that determined? How was that decided? Okay. So they're righteous by faith. And when he refers to this, this group down in the middle of the circle, how, what does he call them? What word does he use to describe them? They're a remnant, okay? So the idea is it's just a very small group. And it's a group who are, uh, uh, as we said, they are righteous by faith. And so what we discover is that with each subsequent limiting factor, the limiting factor was a promise and a promise believed. God gave Abraham a promise and he believed it. God gave uh, Rebecca a promise and she believed it. So there's this this defining of who is true Israel by a promise believed. A promise believed. And so we get down and we discover that there really is this tiny remnant down at the very core and that is also based on a promise believed. Okay? And, uh, and so now we know who this true Israel is within this whole category of ethnic Israel. And remember, we, we, we need to keep in mind that Paul also oftentimes when he speaks about when we speak about true Israel, we're, we're actually talking about the church, including Gentiles, etc. But in Romans chapter nine, that's not how he's using it. That's not how he's talking really just in Romans nine about ethnic Israel. And that's the issue that he's discussing and, and points he's trying to make. What else did we talk about last week? Then we reviewed our concentric circles and we finally got to Paul's core there in the middle of the centric, concentric circles. But what else did we talk about? Okay. And uh, how does he describe that? How does he... What, is, what kind of terminology does he use when he talks about that phenomenon? Okay. Okay, and in the end, they did they obtain it? They didn't obtain it, right? Yeah, okay. And we suggested that this brings up a, a kind of metaphor. What kind of a metaphor is this suggest to us, this pursuing after something? The metaphor of a race, yeah. So we have the metaphor of the race, and we have two racers out there. We have the Gentiles, and we have, the, and we have Israel, okay? And so we have the Gentiles out there and we're watching them on the racetrack and what do they look like? They're in La La Land. They look like I look when I was racing, you know? Like they just weren't putting it all out. They're just out there kind of lollygagging along 
And then all of a sudden, something happens to the Gentiles. And what, what happens? They won the race. They attained righteousness. Okay? So here they are. They're out there. They're really not all that concerned about winning this race or whatever. And suddenly, they attain it. And as I suggested last week, that, that, uh, that word attainment there, it's a very active word. It's a, it's a vigorous uh, type of word. And it's in the active voice. So it's not something passive that was just done to them. But they seized upon it. They grabbed a hold of righteousness, okay, is the idea that's communicated there. Okay, so that's that's the one racer out there. And then the other racer out there is Israel. And what does what is, what is that racer look like? Oh, they're watching their form, their techniques. They're getting all the mechanics. They're after it, okay. They are pursuing. And there again, that word pursuing is a very active word. And so they're out there and they're really aggressively going after righteousness and they're running and they're running and they're, and they're striving after winning the race. And what happens? They stumble. They stumble. There was something out there in the racetrack and they got to that point and they stumbled over. What was that? The stumbling stone of Christ. It was Christ. It's incidentally the same thing that was the reason that the Gentiles attained righteousness. Because they came to that stone and that stone was to them a what? How does Peter describe it to those who believe? A precious stone. So the Gentiles come to this stone and they see this stone that is Christ and they go... This is precious. And they lay hold of it. They grab it. They possess it. It's Christ. And in Him, then, they have righteousness. But the Jews, striving so hard after righteousness, are running so hard, and they come upon that stone, and it's just an obstacle to them, and they stumble over it. Because it's a, as he says here, quoting Isaiah, it's a rock. It's a, a rock of offense, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And we talked about some of the things that Christ said and some of the things that Christ did that were so offensive to the Jews and is offensive to people today when we really make it clear to them what Christ claimed and what Christ taught and what Christ demanded. The Jesus that everybody, that the popular culture thinks about today, oh, he's just this great good man, you know, he was a great prophet and he always talked about loving people and all that sort of thing. And so he's this very nice, benign guy that everybody can like. And we find out, well, that's not just, that's not the complete picture. And when we see the complete picture of Scripture, Christ is no longer this kind of nice, good prophet out there that everybody can pat on the back and say, well, yeah, we like you too. Uh, but he is actually an offense. We talk about how the cross is an offense, but even more so than the, the offense of the cross is the offense of Christ himself. And so the Jews, and of course even many Gentiles do too, but particularly in Paul's point here, the Jews came upon this rock and they stumbled over it. And they stumbled and they did not attain righteousness. Okay? Well, those are some of the things we talked about last week. Now, Paul is, is going on with this same line of reasoning. And he's actually going to kind of, in these verses we're going to look at today, he's going to kind of approach it now from a little bit different angle. He's going to, he's going to kind of explain this whole, day, whole idea of pursuit and attainment. He's going to pursue it from a little different angle and put a little different light on it. And that's what we're going to look at today. But in verse 1, after having just talked about Israel having stumbled over the stumbling stone and therefore not attaining the righteousness that they were so eager to attain. Paul in verse 1 of chapter 10 tells us what? Okay, he says, My heart's desire and my prayer is for their salvation. I, I just, to me, I, that's, that's pretty neat to me with Paul. Because if I'd been Paul 
And I had encountered and endured all the things that he encountered and endured at the hands of these people who had stumbled, stumbled over the stumbling stone. I'm not sure I would have been as gracious as Paul. I'm not sure I would have been as loving as Paul. You know, I wondered, I was thinking about this as I was preparing a lesson this week. I was just thinking, in our own experience, when we encounter people who are really, really obnoxious about our faith, who are really opposed and resist us and fight us and, uh, and, and are really offended by the gospel we preach. Is this our response? You know, to be honest with you, you know, I don't think it's always my response. You know, sometimes I get a little offended and I get hurt and I get, you know, angry at people who, you know, but Paul's just the sincerity of Paul's heart here, the Christ-likeness of Paul's heart here, is that in spite of everything he's endured at the hands of the Jews, and will endure after this even, he says, my heart's desire and my prayer for them is that they would be saved. And so he looks on them and he sees these people who were trying so hard, they were pursuing righteousness so diligently And then they stumbled and fell. And even at that, Paul says, or or even because of that, Paul has this deep sense of love and compassion for them and he wants to see them saved. And I ask myself, well, why is that? Well, as we'll see today, I think one of the reasons for that is because what Paul sees in Israel is his own personal life story. He sees his own personal life experience in what's happening with Israel. And he sees how in spite of his own life experience, God had mercy upon him and saved him and he attained righteousness even though he himself had stumbled over the stumbling stone. Seeing that, his heart is moved with a desire to see the salvation of his, of his brothers after the flesh. Uh, ethnic Israel, and and so so he talks about this heart. And of course, this is just this is kind of a repeat of what he said at the beginning of chapter nine, right? Because back at, in, in chapter nine, he says, "I'm telling verse one." He says, "I'm telling you the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart." And he talks about how. He would, if he could, he'd exchange places with them so they could be saved. And so Paul has this tremendous love for Israel. And I do think that in part, that love and that compassion for Israel is born out of a sense of his own unworthiness and the grace of God in his life. You know, and, 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 and to the degree, I think, that you and I become keenly aware of our own unworthiness. Then when we see others who are unworthy, we're more prone to feel compassion for them, aren't we? We go, well, God, you know, I was like that. Maybe not in exactly the same ways. Maybe my sins weren't exactly like their sins, but I just was an unworthy sinner. And as Christ said, he who is forgiven much loves much. And I think that's what we see here in Paul. Not only in his love for God, but his love for Israel. Well, so then he goes on to explain a little bit more about this idea of pursuing and attaining or pursuing and failing to attain. And he's explaining to us what really happened with Israel. And he says, For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Well, I talked about, I just talked about Paul's own story, and maybe we could just look at a couple other passages and kind of think a little bit about Paul's own story because what we see in Paul in one person is the personification, really, of Israel's whole experience. Turn over to the book of Acts. And you remember at the end of Acts, Paul came back to Jerusalem and there was and, and he was 
trying to go into the, into the temple there and there was a big misunderstanding and a bunch of Jews got in a real outrage about Paul and they wanted to string him up. Well, actually, they probably wanted to stone him. We'd string him up, but they wanted to stone him. And so there was this mob of people and they were out to kill him. And, uh, and the Roman soldiers came in and they rescued Paul. They dragged him away from the mob. And as they're dragging him away, Paul says, hey, wait a minute, let me talk to these people. You know, if it had been me, I would have said, get me out of here. But Paul wants to talk to him. I think it's just simply an expression of just what he talked about. He just has this, he just has this love for Israel. It just, you know, he's just not satisfied to be rescued here. He wants to communicate with them. And so he asks permission. And in chapter 22, it begins the story of his, of what he says to the Jews. He begins to speak to them in Hebrew and that quiets the mob down. They get real quiet and they listen to him. And then he says in verse 3, he says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. And so he begins to address this, this now quieted mob and he describes his own experience and he talks about how he was raised. He was brought up in this faith and he was trained under Gamaliel, this famous, uh, uh, famous Pharisee and famous rabbi. Uh, actually, I don't know if he's a Pharisee, but he was a rabbi and he, and he was brought up strictly uh, according to the law. And he says, I had a zeal for God. He had, a, had this burning passion for God. He says, just as you also do today. And so he's talking to this mob of people and he's saying, I had a zeal like you have. Okay? So this is Paul. He is this man. He is this Jew who is trained in the law meticulously trained, strictly trained according to the law, and he's strictly observing the law. And we'll look at another passage and explore this a little bit more in a minute. But he's living strictly according to the law, and he says, I had a zeal for God just like you people do. Well, he goes on, and there's more to the story there. But flip over to chapter, uh, no pun intended, to Philippians chapter 3. Uh, and... Uh, and, and Paul is again talking about his own experience. Uh, and, uh, and, and once again, he's in, he's in here he's in a, in a controversy with the Jews and there's some people there in Philippi and they're, and they're trying to get the church to follow them. And they're and they're saying uh, they're saying well yeah look at us you know we you know we keep the law we observe the law we do we do all these things and then there's here's Paul he's over here and he's just doing his thing and so they're trying to undermine Paul's influence and and Paul says in uh, Philippians uh, three he says in verse. Uh, Two, he says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. Here's where he's, uh, he's uh, challenging his adversaries here. He says, for we are the true circumcision uh, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence in the flesh, he says there in verse 4, uh, even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. He's saying, if if, if you want to put confidence in the righteousness of the flesh, I can match you point for point. That's what he's saying there, okay? He says, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. Now, when he says, as to the law of Pharisee, he's saying some particularly significant things, okay? Because there is this, within Israel, you have this sect of the Pharisees. What did the Pharisees consider themselves to be? They were experts in the law. That's one thing. But what else regarding the law? They were the keepers of it. They were the guardians of the law. You see, when Israel was carried away into captivity, they were carried away into captivity because of their disregard of God's law. And so they suffered this, 
tremendous uh, discipline by God as they were carried off into captivity. And then when they came back, uh, when they came back and were allowed to come back from captivity uh, under Ezra and Nehemiah and those guys, uh, and they uh, they come back and they and one of the things that that the Jews just decided is this is never going to happen to us again. We're never going to let this happen to us again. So we are never again going to abandon the law of God. So then they began this diligent effort to obey and follow the law of God so that they never again be dispersed. And one of the groups that arose during that intertestamental period, one of the groups that arose as guardians of the law to make sure that Israel keeps the law so we never have to go through this thing again were the Pharisees. And they were these tremendous zealots for the law and it was kind of a twofold dimension for it. One was a personal zealotry to, to adhere to the law personally in their own lives, but they were also determined that all the rest of the Jews were going to adhere to the law too. They wanted to make sure that all the rest of the Jews adhered to the law so that we never had to go through this thing again. So when Paul says, as to the law of Pharisee, what he's saying is, I was a guardian of the law. I was a defender of the law because of my zeal for God. He says, I was a defender of the law. So he says, uh, he says, uh, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Now, those two ideas are connected. That as to the law, he's a Pharisee, and as to zeal, he's a persecutor of the church. Those two things are connected. What is the connection? Okay, the zeal, but 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 why is why is he why does he feel compelled to persecute the church? Because he thought that he thought that the people of the way, the followers of Christ was leading Israel away from adherence to the law. And so that's why he goes out. In his zeal, in his passion, he persecutes the church. And he begins grabbing men and women and throwing them in prison. He describes that in Acts to the, to the mob uh, there in that passage we were looking at in Acts. And he talks about how he was arresting people and he was throwing them in prison. And why was he doing that? Because he was zealous for the law. Because he believed that, that that is how he personally and Israel as a nation would maintain their right standing with God. Their righteousness was all wrapped up in keeping the law. And so we see this zeal that Paul had to keep the law and to guard the law to make sure everybody else kept the law we don't ever have to go through this thing again about being dispersed and going off into captivity and having our women raped and our children murdered. We don't have to go through all that again because we are going to be righteous the way the law tells us to be righteous. Okay? So that's what Paul's saying there. And he says, a persecutor of church, and he says, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Now, he's not saying that he kept the law Perfectly, of course. I, I don't know that there were any Jews who ever really believed that they kept the law. But what he's saying is that, is, that, is that he was an outstanding and upstanding man according to the law. Okay. And that when he sinned, he offered the proper sacrifices under the law, etc. And he just meticulously, as he said earlier, strictly obeyed the law. And so to Paul, we have this idea of the righteousness of God. And, what, and remember what I'm saying to you here is that Paul, Paul in his personal life is a personification of Israel. This is, this is the Israel he's describing in Romans chapter 10. Okay? Is, is, a, is a people who as a people, not all of them exclusively, uh, entirely, but as a people, they were zealous for the law. Okay? Well, then something happened in Paul's life. And we'll get to that in just a minute. But before that, i got a little illustration I want to do. And I need a volunteer. Can I have a volunteer? Okay, you'll have to actually come up here. I need a volunteer. 
Okay, I'm not going to hurt anybody. I promise I won't hurt. Okay, way to go, Hal. Okay, okay, and uh, and I'm not going to throw this at you. Okay, but I here you can stand over here. Okay, now to make this illustration work, you have to only use one hand. So just put the other hand behind your back. Okay, okay. So I'm going to give you this brick. Okay, it's a nice brick, isn't it? Yes. Well designed, right? Yeah, it's got the holes, got everything, got the gr- I don't. Why do they put the grooves on the back of the brick? You know? So the mortar will hang in there. So the mortar will hang in there. Okay, okay. So it's uh, for the same reason. The holes are for weight. The holes are for weight. See, you're an architect, then you learn a thing or two. Okay. Well, whatever the reasons, this brick is designed just right. Somebody put a lot of energy into effort into designing this brick just right, and it's got some neat colors to it. Well, I don't know if you like it. It's not a Walmart brick. No, no, we didn't get that brick at Walmart. Okay, now that brick to you represents every good thing that you have ever done in your life. Okay, every kind word you ever said to your wife. Has he ever told you anything? Okay, every kind thing. She didn't say anything. Every kind thing. Every kind thing you're, you know, you know, every sacrifice, you know, every dollar you put in the offering plate, you know. Every good thing in your life is represented in that brick. Okay? So, um, <laughs> I said it's represented. It's represented. <laughs> There's holes in this theory, okay? Okay. So, given that, are you going to hold on to that brick? Well, I'm kind of hoping you get to the point. <laughs> <laughs> well, it gets worse before it gets better. <laughs> okay. So, uh, so you want to hang on to that, right? Okay, you want to hang on to that. So if I come and try and take it away, what are you going to do? Uh, all my good stuff. Okay, all right. Okay, okay, all right. So here's Hal, and he's got his brick that just represents everything that's good in his life, every good thing he's done. It's his adherence to the law. Okay. But I got an offer for you. Okay. I got an offer for you. I got this. Okay? Now, I'm going to offer you this instead of that. I'll, go, I'll give you this for that. Okay? You want this? I'd rather have the design. You'd rather have the design? Okay. That's what Paul was doing. That's what Israel was doing. They'd rather have what they had designed, what they had done, what was their own doing. And here you got this ugly old brick. A ugly, ugly old stone, okay? And it just doesn't look like much. It looks better on this side, but on this side it doesn't look all that good, right? Okay? And this stone is the stumbling stone. This stone is the rock of offense. This stone is Christ. And with this stone, with this stone comes the righteousness of God. Would you still rather have that? Okay. Take it. No, no. You can't use that hand. This is this hand is your heart and your mind. You only got one heart and mind. So you can't... What did he do? He had to relinquish the brick in order to take the precious stone. As long as he was holding on to the brick, he couldn't take the stone. Okay. See, I told you it wouldn't hurt you. No. Okay. Not okay. Okay. Now, remember that illustration. Because we're going to go on in Philippians chapter 3. And Paul says, and he says then in verse 3, he says, or in verse 7, he says, but whatever thing. Okay. Remember, he's talking about all this good stuff he's done. And he says in verse 7, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, 
not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. You see, Paul came to a crisis point in his life, and we just happen to know that it was at the Damascus Road, that Paul comes to a crisis point in his life and he realizes he's got this brick. But the brick isn't going to cut it. But if he's going to get the stone that he needs, he's got to relinquish the brick. If he's going to get the righteousness that comes with Christ, he's got to forfeit his confidence in the righteousness of the law. So he puts the brick down and he picks up the stumbling stone and it becomes to him a precious cornerstone. Right? So there's this transition point in Paul's experience. Now, when I offered this stone to Hal, he, he wasn't really all that interested because he liked this coolly designed brick, right? Okay? But he didn't know what that stone was. And so as long as he didn't know what the stone was, what did he do? He hung on to the brick. But when I explained to him what the stone was, then he had a knowledge which he acted upon to choose the stone and relinquish the brick. This is just a little illustration. It's a faulty one. It's got its problems, you know, like all parables do. But it's just a little illustration of what Paul is trying to explain to us here in Romans chapter 10. This lets you know how well you can improve your students. It's a black shirt. <laughs> Every oh his shirt. Oh, <laughs> oh boy. Let me go back and start over. <laughs> okay, so this parallels what happened with Israel. Because he says they had a zeal for God. That's their brick. But it wasn't according to knowledge. They didn't know. Now, what we're going to find out a little bit later here in chapter 10 is this is not an innocent ignorance that they have. They are not innocently ignorant. They are willfully ignorant. We're going to find out. Because Paul's going to make the point they should have known because they did hear. Now, the problem that Hal had is he hadn't heard yet. And when he heard, because he's a Gentile, he responded, okay? But if we want to carry our illustration to the extreme, if he'd been a Jew, he wouldn't have. He would have hung on to his brick, okay? That's Paul's point. That Israel was hanging on to their righteousness because they didn't have a certain knowledge. And as we'll see, as I say, we're going to find out that ignorance was a willful ignorance. It was a disobedience to the gospel, okay, that caused them to have that ignorance. But, but Paul is saying, let me go back to Romans 9 now, or Romans 10. Uh, Paul is saying here, he says, For I test about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. So, the crisis here with Israel is that they come upon this stumbling stone. That they've come upon Christ and the righteousness of God is wrapped up in Christ. And to really be righteous in God's eyes, to be declared righteous, to be forensically righteous, as commentators like to say, to be righteous in God's eyes, they had to cast themselves upon that stumbling stone. They had to throw they had to believe in the stumbling stone. They had to believe 
that Christ was their righteousness. But we have a problem, right? Christ is a rock of offense. Everything about him to the natural man is offensive. The claims he makes, the demands he makes, the way he lives his life, it's all offensive to us as natural people. And so, we have this choice set before us. Our own righteousness or this rock of offense. Christ. The righteousness of God. Now, initially... We don't understand that. We don't know that. And he's talking here about the Jews particularly. He says they didn't understand this. And so they had a zeal and they were really trying. Now the Gentiles over here, they didn't care. But the Jews were really trying at this thing. But in spite of how hard they tried, because they didn't understand that righteousness came through Christ and everything about Christ was an offense to them, they didn't understand it. If you want to be righteous, what are you going to do? Stay with the brick. Stay with the brick, folks. Stay with the law. And so that's exactly what Paul says. He says, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. So, you know, it's kind of a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush type of thing, you know? From the natural man's perspective. And there's probably no better illustration of this. Well, I kind of like my brick and rock thing here, but there's probably no better illustration of this than Adam and Eve in the garden. Right? Adam and Eve in the garden, and they fall. They sin. Now they've got to get right with God. So what do they do? To make themselves presentable to God, what do they do? <laughs> yeah, well, they hid, and then they did what? They made clothes from fig leaves, right? Why did they make clothes from fig leaves? Because the animals were their friends. Okay, because the animals were their friends. Boy, he sounds like an environmental wacko. <laughs> he, they realized they were naked, yes. And they were ashamed. But why didn't they, why didn't they make Clothes out of animals. Why didn't they go out and kill an animal? And make an... They never killed anything. It never dawned on them. Why? They were ignorant. They didn't have understanding. So we have a classic picture here in Adam and Eve. Here they sin. They need to be made presentable to God. They need some way to be presentable to God and they don't know about a sacrifice. And so not knowing about a sacrifice, they go get fig leaves and they sew fig leaves together and they cover themselves with fig leaves. This is what Israel had done. They didn't know about the sacrifice of Christ. They didn't know about the righteousness of Christ. Now the difference between Adam and Eve and Israel is Adam and Eve had no way of knowing up until God came and walked in the, in, in the garden and explained to them and made for them uh, uh, garments of animal fur. Okay? So they didn't know. But Israel had rejected that knowledge. Adam and Eve didn't reject that knowledge. So that's the difference. Okay? But they're a perfect example to us of what we do when we don't know about God's righteousness. We make our own. And we clothe ourselves with good works. And then we think that when God shows up in the garden, we're going to be okay. But deep down, deep down, we've got a deep sense that that's probably not true. 
Because Adam and Eve, in spite of the fact they made fig leaves, what did they do? They hid themselves, didn't they? They hid themselves. And so we make these fig leaves, but we still have this sense that, hmm, I don't know if this is going to cut it. But God in His mercy, because He wants to extend mercy to all, as we keep saying, and as we'll see at the end of chapter 11, because He wants to extend mercy to all, to all of us who were Gentiles, most of us who were really not all that concerned about righteousness, He came. And He presented to us the stumbling stone. And we seized it as a precious cornerstone. We grabbed a hold of it. And when we did, the thing we had not pursued after became ours, the righteousness of God. And so what we discover in Paul's conclusion here in verse 4 is that Christ is the end of the law for, for uh, excuse me, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, Paul uses a Greek word here, which is the Greek word telos. Okay? And, uh, and it's translated here end, as it is oftentimes in Scripture. And as with our English word end, the Greek word telos can have several different senses or meanings to it. Okay? So when you think about the English word end, what are some of the things it can mean? Okay, one would be uh, finished, okay, which is uh, uh, kind of the idea of uh, termination, right? Okay, a termination. Uh, or the ceasing, okay. Okay, uh, pardon? Completion, okay. It could mean uh, the sense of a completion. Okay. What else? A boundary. How would you... Okay, but that would still, in that case, it would still be the idea of a finish, right? Okay. Uh, what about if I say... Uh, I'm, uh, I'm teaching this class this morning to the end that you might understand Romans 10. What do I mean? For the purpose, okay? So it can mean the purpose or the goal, okay? Well, and actually in the Greek it has about, uh, one of the lexicons gives about five different meanings, but, but there are primarily two meanings that commentators and Bible scholars discuss here in chapter 10, verse 4. Okay, and and they are uh, these two meanings right here: the idea of the termination or the the end, the ceasing of something, or the idea of the purpose or goal. Okay, uh, and and commentators debate among themselves uh, which one of these two meanings does Paul have in mind here in Romans chapter ten, verse four. As you read the verse, what would you say? See if we can get a scholarly debate going here. Pardon? You would say turn, and why is that? <clears throat> because we don't need the law. Okay. Okay. So you're saying that for everybody who believes the law is just ended, as far as righteousness is concerned, right? Okay. And we've got another thing. Okay. It's like relinquishing the brick. Okay. Is everybody? Is everybody go for that? He stole my thunder. <laughs> Explain yourself. Well, at the end of the law, it's also the purpose. I mean, all the sacrifices and everything pointing toward Christ. Okay, okay. Uh, so, this idea of purpose is going. We get that in Galatians, right? He talks about the law being a schoolmaster or a tutor to bring us to Christ. So, the goal, the purpose of the law is to bring us to Christ. Okay? So, some commentators debate back and forth. But some commentators just kind of, you know, split the fence like Mike and I do and say, well, you know, why can't it be both? 
And one commentator I like, he used the example of the finish line of a race. So you have a race and you have a finish line, and it's kind of appropriate here because we've been talking about a race metaphor already. But so you have a finish line, and which one of these two things is the finish line of the race? It's both, isn't it? It's the end, it's the termination, but it's also the goal. It's the thing that you're trying to get to the finish line, okay? Well, in some sense, for those who believe, Christ is the cessation of the law for righteousness. We tried, we struggled, we tried to get righteous, we carried this brick around and we kept adding to it and drilling more holes in it and trying to perfect it. We kept trying and trying and trying to be... We kept sewing more fig leaves onto our little skirt. You know, we just kept doing all kinds of stuff. But when we came to Christ, all that effort stopped. Now, we don't stop being righteous. We don't stop doing good things. But for the purposes of attaining righteousness, it ceased. But for those who believe, the law comes to an end in Christ. We recognize that Christ is the fulfillment of the law. That's what he himself said. I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. So that when I come to Christ, one of the reasons I can now relax, one of the reasons I can now rest, is because all the requirements of the law which are upon me are now met in Christ. And so Christ has really been, He is the fulfillment of the purpose of the law. Now Paul's going to talk about those who still want to be righteous by the law and he's going to quote Moses in the verses we look at next week. And he's going to talk about what your obligation is if you decide to go that route. Okay, So if you decide... You don't want to let Christ be the end of the law, then what do you have to do? Okay? He's going to talk about that in a few verses, okay? But for now, what he's saying is here's the, here's the tragedy of the Jews. Here's the tragedy of Israel. Last week it was that they stumbled over the stumbling stone. This week he puts it this way the tragedy of the Jews is that they were zealous for God. They were passionately pursuing righteousness, but without knowledge. Without knowledge that righteousness was in the stumbling stone. And without that knowledge, they kept working for this. And they kept hanging on to this. And when Jesus came along and the apostles after him and then Paul and kept trying to take this away from them and show them that this wasn't going to work, they kept hanging on to it tighter and tighter, trying to establish their own righteousness because they didn't realize that the stumbling stone was a precious stone. And that if they believed in him, he would be for them the end of the law for righteousness. Right? Well, he's going to go on with more of this next week, but that's, uh, that's enough for today.